that music, it means, folks, it's time for Fuzzy Logic. My name is Broderick Matthews, and it's a pleasure to have you in the studio with us this morning as we get into our science on a Sunday. That's right. That's what you're here for on 98.3 FM. It's our weekly hour of science, and uh, it's quite exciting to have you on board with us Thanks very much to Irish Voice for the show beforehand. Some fantastic Irish music and it always puts me in a nice relaxing mood as I come into the studio and we're ready to launch into it. But now I'm ready to take you into the world of science. I've got some great stories lined up from Science News across the week today. I even have a special Anzac Day story because today is, of course, the 25th of April. But to kick today's show off for everyone... Uh, I've got a fantastic uh, interview lined up with an engineer uh, joining us this morning. So without any further ado, let's, uh, let's welcome James to the studio. Now, James is a, uh, a civil engineer from Mainmark, Australia, um, and, uh, and he's got some expertise in something called subsidence. And uh, so I'm really excited to have James on board this morning to share that with us. Good morning, James. Good morning, Broderick. Uh, thanks very much for uh, joining us this morning. Um, now, uh, you're a, a civil engineer from Mainmark, Australia, and uh, tell us a little bit about the, the work that you do with uh, subsidence. What, what is it? What, what are we looking for? Generally, subsidence from, the, from a homeowner or a building owner's point of view is more about difference in subsidence than the subsidence itself. So subsidence is where the ground settles. And there's lots of things that can make the ground settle. Um, in Canberra, the most common one is either too much water or not enough water. Um, but it could be broken pipes such as, well, every you know, once a year we see cars disappearing into holes in the road with a um, large sinkholes opening up. Now, that's a fairly extreme form of subsidence where almost every one of those cars dropping into the bottom of the road has a large stormwater pipe at the bottom, and that stormwater pipe's been letting water in and out of the ground, removed the ground particles, and eventually a cave forms, and then the cave collapses, and we say goodbye to a car. Right. Okay. So this is something that um, you're talking about, water moving around there. Does it, is it generally from um, man-made reasons that it's happening, or does it happen naturally too? Well, it happens naturally. Um, in New Zealand, they actually have a Maori word for it, tomo. And that's where little water channels form in the ground. And you get it, um, it's referred to as piping, where you have a little water channel running under the ground. And eventually, that just takes out more and more of the soil. The water channel gets bigger until finally, once again, it bridges and collapses. Now, that sort of effect rarely impacts houses. It's more a matter of generally houses, particularly in Canberra with the reactive clays, it's more about the ground being too wet or too dry. And the reactive clays, when they're too wet, they swell. When they're too dry, they shrink. And if they get really, really wet, they lose their strength and then the house just settles down through the very soft clay. And so, and that's the most common one we see in houses around the, Australia. Um, virtually all of the East Coast is on reactive clay. And so whether it's Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, Tasmania, Canberra, yeah, it's all reactive clay. And so we see a lot of movement differentially across the house. So one corner of the house might subside or sometimes the back wall along the um, where the um, 
bathrooms and things are, that subsides because there's localised water escaping in that area. Right. And so um, you talked earlier about the cars falling down the holes, but I'm presuming there's probably some signs we can see in our house before we have the the whole thing falling in a hole. Uh, What sort of things are we looking for? Um, It's Generally, it's cracks. Cracks are the dead giveaway. Sometimes in the most extreme ones we've seen, we're looking at very, very noticeable slopes in the floor. But the real giveaway that a house is moving is cracks in the walls. So not so much the ceilings of the roof, but the walls. And they'll be, most of the time, they're shaped like a staircase. They're like little steps following the bricks down along the wall. And that's normally a sign that either one side of the crack has gone up or the other side of the crack's gone down. So cracking's the most common thing that people see. Door sticking's another one. Windows no longer opening. So some people notice that in winter they can't open a window, but in summer the window opens easily. Now, that's just normal seasonal movement of the ground. It's when it slowly just gets worse year after year after year. That's when there's a problem. Uh, okay, so if we're seeing this this problem start to occur, um, it's probably a, a sign that uh, we need to do something about it. Is that what sort of mitigation methods can we put in place? Okay, look, the, we go back to what causes it. So it's yeah. either too much water or not enough water. Now, with not enough water, so if it gets dried out and areas locally shrunk, there's really, as far as Canberra's concerned, there's only one thing that causes not enough water, and that's tree roots under part of the building and not under other parts. So locally dry down the area where the tree roots are, and that'll cause it. So the most, the simplest thing that um, the typical person in their own home can do is make sure that they're planting trees more than the mature height of the tree away from the house. If you put a large liquid amber or an ornamental pear close to your house, it's going to cause problems locally. Yeah. So so that addresses the two dry. Only one thing causes it, it's trees. And if for most trees, if you keep the mature height away from the house, that will look after the house. So that that's interesting though, because there's pretty there's a lot of trees surrounding our houses here in Canberra, you know, with the the bush capital and that sort of mm. thing. Have have we has, has this sort of planning of, of tree-lined streets and that sort of thing not necessarily been a good idea to, to keep our houses stable? It's, there's no problem with having trees. It, it's more about selection and placement than yeah. not having trees. I have trees around my house. <laughs> I like the trees around my house. Yes. <laughs> and some of them are very close and some are further away. So, for instance, I've got a little cherry tree that's about a metre away from the corner of the house. Now, if I, with a cherry tree, it's a slow grower, it has shallow roots, so it doesn't cause any trouble because its roots are not as deep as the footings. If I was to put an ornamental pear in the same location, that's a quick grower. An ornamental pear will grow from one metre high to about six metres high in two to three years. Yeah. And when it's growing that fast, it's taking a lot out of the soil, which includes the moisture, and so... In Canberra, that little ornamental pear that you planted at one metre and grew to six metres in two or three years, if you put that near the corner of your house, it'll probably drop it in the order of about 70 millimetres. So not a little bit of a drop, 70 millimetres. That's so, you know, it's the width of your hand. Yeah, so, and I guess, that what's a, what's a concerning drop when we're, we're thinking about soil substance and, and housing? 
Okay, so let's break it into different types of houses. So Canberra's got some different types of houses. You've got the older houses, the double brick with the single brick inside, which is sort of roughly 80, 90-year-old houses. They're really designed... They can... They've got some of them have quite deep footings, but most of them have quite shallow footings. So they they're not very stiff. So 10, 20 millimeters of movement in those houses will cause cracks. Now that building methodology in Canberra even came into the 70s with the gubbies and the um, brick veneers of the 70s. They're still in quite shallow quite narrow strip footing, so about 300 wide, founded only about 400 mil into the ground. So they're not very stiff, so they don't take much movement. So when you get to the more recent houses, they'll be built on concrete raft slabs. They'll have a 600, 800-inch beam around them. So current houses in Canberra are designed to move plus or minus about 30 millimetres. So go up 30 millimetres in winter, down 30 millimetres in summer. Whereas the older houses struggle, it's of 10, 20 millimetres of movement. Mm-hmm. So older houses will crack more than newer houses because their footings just aren't as stiff, so they, they can't flex as much. Um, newer houses also have things like articulation joints in the brickwork, which means that bits move as panels instead of cracking. So if you imagine if you took two bricks and uh, two books and held the two books up next to each other and then moved the tops of the bricks away, uh, the books away to form a V opening at the top. Mm. And then if you put the books back together again, that V will close. That's the way the articulation joints work in the brickwork, which is most of the houses built since the sort of 1990s. So they're designed to move with the soil where the older houses were not. Yeah, okay. And, and I guess... Um... Uh, you did mention the the seasonal movement there too, which I hadn't sort of considered. So that's um, that's all all very important. And I guess this is um, probably leads me on to my next point: is yeah, what sort of what sort of uh, research and development is is going into to further ways to stop the the sub- substance happening uh, and causing uh, more more problems for us? Look, it's. It's not, there's actually been very little research going on. There's a little bit happening at Swinburne University in Melbourne where they're looking at methods to artificially age clay soils to so that as clay soils get older, they move less. Now, older, we're talking about millions and millions of years. We're not talking about a couple of weeks. Okay, yeah. Uh, so, so geologically artificial age, that's been tried in the US, didn't they hadn't very mixed results in the US. Um, Swinburne is trying a little bit different, but the bulk of the research was actually done in Adelaide University. So Adelaide University did a lot of um, very, very good work through the 80s and 90s. Um, it was the backbone of the CSRO building technical note on how to manage moisture around the house, around the home. Yeah. So the reality is that there isn't that much research really happening in it's one of those ones where the individual asset owners tend to be mums and dads with their homes and it's not it's not seen as a large research potential and so current research other than Swinburne there's a bit there's not that huge amount happening but Adelaide has been the backbone of it for Australia so that's that's interesting. You say, yeah, because often research is um, guided by the the impact it might have 
on um, on our our population and what's going on. Are you are you concerned about the lack of action in this space? Look, it's one of these ones that, in many ways, the engineering is actually quite solid in this area. Mm. Um, it's very hard to stop reactive clays moving. It's actually very easy to increase the thickness of a house. So it's actually some very simple engineering principles make a big difference into how a house performs. Sometimes market's a little bit slow on this. Um, we had friends who were building a new house and they asked what could they do to um, improve the house. It was in a, one of the uh, middle Melbourne suburbs. And it was going, oh, you make your footings a little bit deeper. And it wasn't massively deeper. It was 75 millimetres. So yeah. not that much deeper at all. No, it doesn't feel like that would make much of a difference. No, um, it doubles the stiffness of the house. It costs yeah, them wow. about an extra $1,200 on the build of the house. Yeah. So almost no cost at all when you're building a house. Double, because it doubled the um, stiffness of the, of, the, um, of the house, but they had this problem when it came to the build. So the builder had agreed to it and they paid the extra and it was all on the engineer's drawings. And then the fellow was coming out down the slab, assumed the engineer had made a mistake and decided that it was the wrong height and took it back to the height that he normally builds in that area. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah, it got caught in time and you had to lift all the reinforcement out and all the con- all the um, plastic out. So it got caught before it poured the um, concrete. Yeah. There was about a two, three-day argument between the engineer and the concreter on, where, on who had made the mistake. Yeah. Because the concrete knew what size footings went into this particular suburb. Yeah. So, yeah, so the reality is to build it in at the time of construction, we're talking about much less than 1% of the cost of the house we're talking about less than a quarter of a percent of the house, can more than double the performance of the house for on reactive ground. Mm. So really little cost has a massive impact. Yeah. So how, how, do, we, um, how do we start to, to get some change happening in this space? Is it something that um, needs to be uh, you know, brought, brought forward through, through government policy or is it, is it something more that we just need people to become more aware of, of the risks of subsidence and, um, and the, the potential benefits of change? Look, as a population, we are already much more aware. The way I normally put it to people is most people who are in my generation, so in their 50s, if they think back to their grandmother's kitchen, and most of us can think of a crack in the wall of their grandmother's kitchen or around their grandmother's house. Mm. That was taken as normal then. And so... Back roughly you know, 40, 50 years ago, a 10 millimetre crack in the wall was considered as just something we had in our houses. Now, people don't want a 1 millimetre crack. So people are already expecting much less damage to the house due to the soil it's sitting on. So that's something that's already in the community expectation. Mm. And that's flowed through into the Australian Standards and the National Building Code. So if we go back to the early 70s, there was no real standard on what depth of footings houses should have on different soils. Then the first of the um, the, the little A5 standards came in, which required a minimum, I think it was 300 deep. So not all that deep. Then went 450, and if that same house was built today, the standard required an 800 deep footing. So footings in the last 50 years have more, not even that far, in the last 40 years, have more than doubled in depth. 
Yeah. Now, in stiffness, that's squared, so it's four times as stiff. So four, you need four times the amount of movement to get the same sort of cracking. Yeah. So our codes and standards have already taken on into account people's expectations, and they've designed around for it, but we get caught out on things. Melbourne had a very, very long drought from 2000 to 2008. Now, all of the standards are written around plus and minus movements. So in the northern and western suburbs of Melbourne, it's about 35 millimetres. So plus 35 in winter, minus 35 in summer, between a really dry winter and a really dry... Sorry, a really wet winter and a really dry summer. Eight years of, um, of drought caused the ground to be really, really dry. So a lot of builders have been building the same house for years and years and years. 2008, 2009, 2010 had a lot of trouble with these houses. And they're looking and saying, I've been building that model of house on that style of house for 20 years. Why did these ones have problems? It's because it's been such a long, dry period that rather than being designed for, rather than being built at plus, plus or minus 35 movement, they had minus zero plus 70. And mm. so when they went up, a lot of damage occurred because they just, of moving twice what they're designed for. And there's that's where the awareness doesn't come in. So the standards are there, but the awareness is both in the general community, engineering community of how, when not to apply the standards. And that, so, you know, that 2008, 2009 in Melbourne really showed when not to rely on the standards. That's part of the um, educational learnings that's not there. And the other one is what the homeowners do around their home. So we used that example earlier of planting the wrong trees too close to the house. The other one is not taking care of the plumbing. So we talked about the too dry, but we didn't talk about the too wet. Yeah. We look at a lot of broken homes every single year, thousands of them. Um, so you know, this is not something that affects one or two thousand houses a year in Australia. This is one that affects tens of thousands of homes every year in Australia. And the vast majority of those are broken pipes. Whether it's a leaking stormwater or a leaking sewer, that that um, pipe is just always discharging water. In See, if we take the sewer pipe, everyone goes to the toilet every day, everyone goes has a shower every day, we wash our dishes every day. So that water's always running into the ground if the pipe's broken. Mm. And that causes the ground to come too wet. When it comes too wet, it can't support the weight of the house and then it sinks down. Then when the house, when you go and repair that, um, that broken pipe, that oversaturated soil then dries down, and as it dries, it sinks further. And so maintaining pipes is probably the single biggest influence on how well a house will perform in reactive soils. Yeah, okay. So it's it's all about the, the maintenance in there and, and looking after things and, and being aware. I guess, are you are we expecting to see um, more changes into the future given the the changing climate and, and you know, the, the more action and, and effect that humans are having on the earth? Yes. Um, both from climbing, climate change, because if we have drier summers and wetter winters, then what was, say, a plus or minus 20 millimetre area will become a plus or minus 30 millimetre area. So we'll see more... The amplitude of the seasonal movement will increase. So we'd see more swelling up in winter, more shrinking down in drying. 
The other thing that happens with time is ageing. So if we go into those, you know, I think Cowan's a 1970 suburb, isn't it? So when it was built, it had terracotta pipes everywhere. Over time, all of that infrastructure in the ground gets older. And as it gets older, it gets more brittle. Tree roots get into the joints, opens up the joints. And all of a sudden, they become greater sources for leaking pipes. Just because the you know, if you look at terracotta pipe, it's got a joint every 450 or 600 millimetres. If you look at PVC plastic pipe, it's got a joint every three metres. And it's a glue joint where the terracotta's are often just butt-jointed. So you've got the older areas will have more problems as well because the infrastructure is older and wasn't, as, wasn't built as well for containing water. Yeah. So uh, yeah, so potentially uh, there there could be some um, some some problems coming through as we start to to get here. You know, in Australia, we're um, we're, we're with some of our housing built all around that that period. There's potentially some stuff coming through. So I guess going forward, if um, the advice for our listeners, if they're um, or twofold, if they're either buying an old house or building a new one, what, what bits of advice would you give them for those situations? Let's start with the bold, buying the old house. I'm sure a fair number of your listeners have sold houses in the past and the first thing they did before they put on the market was they went and filled in all the cracks and painted them all over so that you couldn't see the history of the house. So when you're buying an old house, get a building inspector involved. A building inspector will go through and they'll look at the house in a lot more detail than either you or I would. Um, the other thing is, don't just look at the house you're buying. Because if the house I'm buying, it's been patched, it's been painted, they've covered everything up. Go and look at the house next door. The house next door probably isn't up for sale at the moment. And if it's, if it's got problems, then the house you're buying probably has problems too. So look at the neighbours. That tells you very quickly whether there's a general problem in the area or not. So, yeah, old houses, get a building inspector, have them check the floor levels because the floor levels are a dead giveaway. And, yeah, don't just look at the house you're buying, look around the house, look in the neighbourhood. Now, that's old houses. New houses are a lot easier. Houses only fail in two ways. Either footing fails or the weather gets in. Now, you can control the weather very easily by just making sure you have a really good roofing plumber and the glass, the glazing's of good quality. With the footings, it's remarkably easy to go for stiffer footings. So it's things such as increasing the depth. So, yes, you might only need a 450-deep footing or a 600-deep footing in the area you're in. Just increase it one size. Take the 450 to 600 or take the 600 to 800. That little bit of extra depth in the footing will cost no more than one or $2,000 on the cost of the house, but it will make a massive difference in the long-term performance of the footing system. Mm. The would... other one is... Mm-hmm. Oh, I was just say, you said it was, um, it was a, a, uh, an exponential ratio there that, you know, twice yeah, as squared. deep as squared. Yeah, that's right. So twice, yeah. a bit more in it and it goes, goes up quite a bit in stiffness. Yeah. So if we look at that 600 to 800, so 6 squared is 36, 8 squared is 64, it's effectively um, 8 squared is... Yeah, 64, that's yeah, right. 64, yeah, 64, sorry. Yeah. So it's almost twice as almost much. Almost double, yeah. 
And all he did was put an extra 200 mil around the footings. So he probably got about an extra three or four cubes of concrete. That's about $800 of concrete. You've got a little bit of extra excavation. But the concrete costs the same amount because the concrete charges by the square metre. The square metres of the house didn't change. Yeah. The reinforcing didn't change. You still have exactly the same volume of reinforcing, the same amount of steel in the um, footings. That didn't change. Everything above the slab of the house, that didn't change. So for, you know... One to two, one to two thousand dollars. You just double the stiffness of the footings. The other thing that people do that I don't like, well, if you work on the idea that at some stage everyone's going to have a broken pipe, it then comes down to how easy it is to fix that broken pipe. Now, newer houses tend to run the plumbing through the middle of the house. So if you've got your broken pipe sitting underneath your lounge room floor, which has your carpet down and it's concrete slab. Well, to get to that pipe, you're cutting, you're lifting up your carpet, you're cutting a hole through the concrete slab, you're digging down, your house isn't all that livable at this point of time. Yeah. Then they're fixing it, and they've, then they've got to put the dirt back, they've got to put the concrete back, they've got to put the carpet back. So now to fix that broken pipe is a ten, twelve thousand dollar fix and massively disruptive. If we go back to the govies where all the um, all the um, wet areas were on the back middle of the house, and all the servers went straight out the backyard. Well, now to fix that pipe, you might have one to three thousand dollars of plumbers, but it's all outside. He's digging up the dirt in the backyard. He's fixing that pipe, and one day he's done, and you didn't have a massive big pile of dirt and broken concrete in your lounge room. Yeah, that that sounds so, like a much better solution. <laughs> <laughs> it is a much better solution if you work on the idea. What do I do if something goes wrong? Hmm. Yeah. So that, that's interesting that those changes we've made to the the modern housing potentially made to, to sort of streamline things a bit more and, and get things in smaller spaces? Would that be why yeah. that, they've been done? Yeah. Look, it started with the boundary-to-boundary um, boundary building, which is a very inner-city building. It's mm. not really a Canberra style of building. No. But plumbers found that when they built boundary-to-boundary, boundary, we've got no choice. You have If you've got the um, ensuite at the front bedroom and you've got the kitchen at the back, you've got to connect the sewers and the waste wars and everything together. So... In a boundary to boundary, they had no choice. They had to go down in the middle of the house. But what they found was they also saved about three metres of um, PVC pipe, so a grand total of about $20. <laughs> they also saved about three metres of trenching, so, you know, 20 minutes, half an hour. Mm. They didn't like digging trenches, so, yep, it was a better way to build. And so it then spread across all houses rather than just the ones where they had no choice. And in reactive soils... It's a really bad choice to build to run your services through the middle of the house because the ground will move, and if the ground moves, it means all your services are flexing, yeah. and eventually they will leak and they'll need to be fixed. Yeah. No, I think it's a good reminder for us as humans. Sometimes we think um, whatever we do is is central and solid, and 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 everything will you know work around us but in reality we have to make sure things work around um the environment that we're setting it up in yep. uh, wonderful well look it's not often we have an engineer on uh, fuzzy logic james so it's uh, it's been uh, fantastic to have you uh here with us this morning and and giving some some real practical advice there um to to help prepare us for for canberra soils and our houses in them now- Specifically for Canberra, our yep. local fellow in Canberra, Alan Reid, he is an engineer. Now, in our business, we when I first joined the business 12, 11, 12 years ago, 
there are very, very few engineers in the business. We now have a lot more. Um, but yeah, our local representative in um, Canberra is civil engineer. And so very, very knowledgeable and knows his area very, very well. So if people do want to get in touch, they've got some concerns for themselves and that sort of thing. Where can they get in touch with you and your local engineer, James? Uh, Good question. We have a phone number, which I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) If they just Google Mainmark, it'll come up with an 1800 number, which is a free call through to Sydney, and they'll be able to put them through to Alan Reid. Yeah, wonderful. So it's Mainmark Australia there. Um, yep. which is where you work and, um, yeah, checking out your, your substance. Here it is, 1-800-623-312 is the number. That's... Thank you. <laughs> no worries. So, yes, one... I shouldn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> All good. So, yeah, 1-800-623-312 and uh, give James and his team a call and um, they can talk about subsidence and um, make sure that your house isn't going to slip away anytime soon. Wonderful. Well, thanks so much for your time on this uh, Sunday morning, James. I've, I've really enjoyed the chat and I'm um, getting to know a bit more about the ground that sits beneath us. Thank you very much, Roderick. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And that was uh, James uh, O'Grady there from Mainmark, Australia, uh, sharing a bit about subsidence here on Fuzzy Logic this morning. Let's take a short break. What's in your radio right now, folks, is Fuzzy Logic. Yes, Fuzzy Logic, your science show here on 2XFM, people-powered radio. That's community radio in Canberra. We're streaming online at 2xxfm.org.au. And if you enjoy what you listen to here, whether it's Fuzzy Logic or one of our other fantastic shows, you can also subscribe as well, and subscriptions are what helps support our station and keeps us going, keeps us pushing forward. So we started off today's show with uh, James earlier talking about subsidence and uh, the earth moving underneath us and if you see cracks in your house, what you can do. Uh, But I'm going to move on to some more uh, science news from across the week now. Um, And in fact, a bit of old news to start with. And I I thought being Anzac Day today, the 25th of April, maybe it's time to reflect on uh, something scientific around that. And I thought, well, what what, what is scientific about... um, Anzac Day, what's happening? And probably one of the uh, motifs of Anzac Day that everyone knows is the lone pine. That's right. It was a, 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 a tree at Gallipoli um, that uh, that soldiers saw there as they battled in the trenches. Um, it was four days of hand-to-hand fighting there. And the Allies at that point in time had what was a rare win um, it was at the cost of many lives, of course, many thousands of Australian soldiers and Turkish soldiers too. But the lone pine at Gallipoli was a, a symbol of that fight. And at the time, some of the soldiers actually souvenired uh, pine cones from that lone pine and brought them back to them, uh, brought them back with them to Australia. And so uh, trees were, were grown from that lone pine seed. Uh, one of the best-known ones is down at Warrnambool. But what sort of pine is it? Let's get scientific on this. Let's take a look at the botany of uh, this. It was a Turkish red pine that they were looking at, Pinus brucia, or brutia, uh, depending on how you want to say it, um, closely related to the Aleppo pine, um, which is another pine that was actually brought back from the fighting there. Um, 
and yeah, grown grown well across the Turkish area. Grows about twenty to thirty five meters tall and uh, trunk diameter of up to one metre. It takes a bit of effort to grow it in Australia because, of course, it's not uh, normally grown here and uh, botanists were used to help uh, craft some of the early seeds and turning them into something that was um, that was able to be grown down here and, and helping cultivate that. But what sort of uses does the tree have? Well, it's... Um, it, uh, it can actually produce a bit of a, a honey-type uh, substance there, um, and that's thanks to one of the aphids that lives inside the trees. Uh, it's an aphid called Marcolina hellenica. Um, so, yes, up in the Turkish Greece region there, with a name like hellenica, it doesn't damage the uh, pine at all, but uh, the pine does have some excess sugar um, that it secretes and... Um, that sugar or honeydew is then collected by honeybees, which make it into a richly flavoured pine honey, which sounds pretty good to me, pine honey. Um, and it's got some uh, supposed medical benefits as well in there. I don't know whether they're proven or not, um, but uh, pine honey sounds pretty good. The, uh, the lone pine is also widely planted for timber uh, across Turkey and also uh, elsewhere in the Mediterranean region across to Pakistan as well. So used for many different purposes, including carpentry as well as firewood and pulping, um, and it's uh, it's pretty resistant to caterpillars too, um, and and finally it's also used as an ornamental tree as well because it just looks good there. So that's a bit on the lone pine, Pinus brucia, or brutia. Um, if you want to see one, the Warrnambool. Um, uh, Botanic Gardens has a, a fantastic example of the lone pine and there are those that have popped up all across uh, the country too, seeded uh, from the original lone pine tree there. I think you can even buy lone pines now at uh, some, um, uh, not florists, garden centres and those sorts of places where you can buy trees. So they've done a great job in bringing that uh, back here, the lone pine, Pinus brucia. So that's my little reflection on an Anzac Day today. I don't know whether you got up early to uh, to check out uh, the dawn service or you're uh, heading off to the parade uh, this afternoon, but it's a fantastic uh, way to remember um, what happened uh, many, many years ago. But let's jump back into the present day now and take a short look at some of the news from this week. Uh, and one of the biggest pieces of news that happened this week was a helicopter flight. Now, normally helicopters aren't that big a deal, but this was the helicopter flight on Mars. NASA's Ingenuity uh, became the first aircraft in history to make a powered, controlled flight on another planet. And it was pretty exciting. It happened uh, on uh, Monday at uh, 6.46am over in the US, so it was probably Tuesday uh, over here. And it's uh, it's a fantastic achievement for uh, NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratories. It was a solar-powered helicopter, and it became airborne, uh, and uh, at a time on Mars where, uh, about in the middle of the day, Mars time, um, where they determined it would have optimal energy and flight conditions. They found that the, um, the data they collected from Ingenuity, because, of course, they can't just watch it on a camera, uh, but the data they collected showed that it uh, climbed to an altitude of three metres, 
hovered there for 30 seconds and then descended to touch back down on the surface of Mars, giving a total of 39.1 seconds of flight. So more details are likely to come as they get more data downloaded from there. But it's pretty exciting news. This, this first flight demonstration was autonomous flight, uh, so it was piloted by onboard guidance, navigation and uh, control systems themselves running algorithms that were developed by the Jet Propulsion Laboratory team at NASA um, because uh, they can't control it there themselves because data's being sent to Mars and back is travelling hundreds of millions of kilometres uh, using satellites in a deep space network so they can't fly it in real time. It's just not possible at this point, so it has to be able to fly itself. Um, quite amazing, really, you know, when you consider it was, what, just over 100 years ago, uh, almost 120 years ago, when the Wright brothers uh, first um, started making their first flights on our planet, and now the helicopters flying on other planets in other worlds. It's just absolutely amazing to think of it in that way. And uh, there's there's uh, certainly a lot of learning that's going to be coming from this. The helicopter itself um, was uh, only 50 centimetres tall, uh, didn't contain any scientific instruments at this, this point in time, and uh, the fuselage itself was only about the size of a tissue box, uh, so pretty small thing, 1.8 kilos in total, um, and basically looking to determine whether future exploration of Mars could be done using similar equipment. But they sort of had to just test it out first, see whether this helicopter flight actually works, because there's so many unknowns there. Um, the red planet itself, Mars, has got much lower gravity, about a third of the Earth's gravity, and a thin atmosphere too, only 1% uh, of pressure at the surface compared to Earth, which means with, you know, not many air molecules, it's going to be a bit harder um, for the uh, flying uh, machine to have anything to push against. But then less gravity, hmm, does that mean it's going to be able to move up more easily? So it was an interesting experiment here, and uh, it's quite an amazing um, experiment, really, to, to have gone from um, that uh, in... Uh, an idea in uh, in just over six years ago to actual flight is quite amazing to see. So look, keep an eye on Ingenuity and all the fantastic work they're doing um, over there on Mars at the moment. Uh, and uh, they're going to be downloading some more data and imagery over the next uh, few days as they start to plan a, a second experimental test flight um, and... Uh, see what happens from there they're going to keep expanding that uh, that sort of movement which is very exciting indeed so that was the story of ingenuity there we're going to take a short break now and when we come back a couple more stories of science from this week i hope you enjoyed uh, the interview earlier with um uh with james talking about um uh, all the things that are happening in subsidence and things you can do to take a look at your house. If you did miss it, uh, you can catch up on the podcast, which is on Fuzzy Logic on 2xx.podbean.com or find us on iTunes as well. And uh, you can always ask us any questions you have or if there's a particular area of science you want to hear more about, you can do that uh, by sending us an email, askfuzzy at zoho.com. 
That's askfuzzy, all one word, at zoho.com. To finish off, another short piece on uh, some science research that's been out this week, and it's looking at new CRISPR technology, which is going to change our epigenetic inheritance. So CRISPR is a fantastic technique that's been developed over the last decade or so, and CRISPR stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats. Uh, It's basically a a technique that's being used to edit DNA, edit genomes. And in the latest news, they've found out how to edit the epigenome, um, which is uh, all about proteins and small molecules that latch onto DNA, controlling when genes are switched on and off. And epigenetics plays a huge role in helping define uh, what our DNA actually does. So normally CRISPR uh, is equipped with two pieces of molecular hardware that make it able to edit genes. One is something that can snip and snap and uh, chop up the DNA, uh, which gives CRISPR the ability to alter those sequences. And then the other part of CRISPR is uh, something that can help home in and program to zero in on certain DNA sequences of interest. Now this new technique called CRISPR-OFF for the, um, the epigenetic side of things They uh, got rid of CRISPR's normal DNA snipping enzyme function but retained the homing device and uh, looked at creating CRISPR capable of targeting any gene but not editing it. Instead, when it targeted a gene, they tethered an enzyme to this bare-bones CRISPR and rather than splicing the DNA, instead, the enzyme is acting on the epigenome. So this new tool targets a uh, particular epigenetic feature known as DNA methylation, which is when one of uh, many molecular parts of the epigenome. So when DNA is methylated, this small chemical tag uh, known as a methyl group, which is a carbon and, and three hydrogens there, it affixes itself to the DNA, which silences nearby genes. Now, DNA methylation is actually something that occurs naturally in most mammal cells, but CRISPR-OFF, this new technique, offers scientists unprecedented control over this process, um, which is uh, fantastic. So, yes, not only getting, uh, getting it in there, but switching it off, and they're also looking at how they can develop something called CRISPR-ON2, which removes those methylation marks deposited by CRISPR-OFF, making this process fully reversible. So it's a a fantastic idea, and it's got huge therapeutic potential um, uh, by being able to edit that. um, Could be something that's administered once to people to have lasting therapeutic effects, making it something that's promising for uh, treating rare genetic disorders, uh, including things like Marfan syndrome, which affects kinetic connective tissue, Jobs syndrome, which is an immune system disorder, and certain forms of cancer as well. So CRISPR-OFF, a fantastic new technique that potentially could help solve some genetic disease issues. And with the wrapping up of that story, that brings us to the end of today's Fuzzy Logic episode. It's been fantastic to have you tuning in and listening to us here today, folks, on uh, 98.3 XFM in Canberra. We're here every week at 11am to share the science that's been going on around the world and here in Canberra, of course. My name is Broderick Matthews. It's an absolute pleasure having you with us and I hope you tune in again next week for Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday.